Hello and welcome to this discussion hosted by the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. I'm Jessica Hughes and I'm joined today by Graham Harvey, Professor in Religious Studies here at the Open University, and by Shirley Elderfield, who's an Open University PhD student. And we are delighted to welcome Dr Anna Perdibon, who's visiting us from Venice to talk about her work on sacred trees and tree persons. Anna, you studied the religious world of the ancient Mesopotamians. Can you begin by introducing that world for people who aren't familiar with it? So roughly what time period we're talking about and what geographical area? So the ancient Mesopotamia is uh, correspond approximately to the contemporary Iraq and uh, in general uh, roughly all the ancient Near East, also the middle, contemporary Middle East. So also the regions of Syria, Palestine, um, Iran, Israel, and even with Egypt and the neighboring uh, regions of Iran and Turkey. And the time span of the ancient Mesopotamian civilization covers uh, from the third until the first millennium BCE. And what we're talking about is the historical period, because of course there is much earlier. And what kinds of evidence do we have for ancient Mesopotamian religion? So the main evidence I've been working on is the written evidence, which is based on clay tablets uh, on which uh, um, a scripture, it's called the cuneiform scripture, was developed. And uh, um, the main languages that, um, that's being written in the cuneiform scripture were uh, Sumerian, a non-Semitic language that we still don't know which family is belongs to, uh, and Akkadian, which is with with its uh, sub-dialects, which are Babylonian and Assyrian, so the southern and northern dialects. And of course, among this many, uh, many, very many cuneiform tablets, um, there is a, a small but very rich um, part which consists of rituals, myths, uh, hymns, prayers, which is of course uh, the main of source for the religious life of the ancient Mesopotamians, but also the economic uh, and administrative texts can provide um, complementary um, insights about the religious life. I don't know, for example, offerings or a list um, of uh, temple materials and cultic objects. Let's move on to talk about trees now. This is a big question, but what are the roles of trees in Mesopotamian religion? I would say that within the Mesopotamian cosmos and religion, trees were conceptualized as cosmic entities, pillars of the world and mediums between dimensions and their inhabitants, and as a sacred protecting and healing other than human persons inhabiting the sacred landscape and physical environment. So the vegetable vegetal and arboreal entities or persons engaged with the anthropomorphic gods with benevolent and malevolent beings and with humans in a dense network of correspondences uh, but they also feature autonomous agency individual personalities and a powerful kinship with gods and humans is also on display moreover particular trees are clearly understood to partake of the divine in those cases where they are called flesh or bones of the deities their conceptualization as sacred and living persons is further expressed by the very rare, unfortunately, evidence of Thanksgiving's rites 
and or at least some um, respectful attitude toward the uh, arboreal beings. So uh, do you have any examples of texts where we get a good idea of trees being used for one of these purposes? There is a text, for example, that is an incantation uh, for healing purposes. And so it was performed uh, during a healing ritual, um, which addresses the tamarisk, which is a tree that was widely, you know, um, growing um, commonly in the ancient Mesopotamian context, um, that addresses the tree as a tree of heaven, um, so in its cosmic nature. Uh, moreover, it, is, um, it said that at its roots, Enki, so the god of uh, fresh waters, pours out water, and its branches, uh, Shamash, the sun god, uh, determines the destinies. Um, and with the branches of the tamarisk, the, the same, very same body of the gods is uh, purified uh, because with the branches of the tree, um, um, the, um, the great gods, the statues of the gods were purified and healed as much as also um, the healing, the patient, so in the healing performances. Mm -hmm. Now, Shirley, in your doctoral work, you've been looking at the site of Dodona, um, particularly the oak tree that was a source of oracles there. Can you give us a brief introduction to Dodona, let's say where it is, why it was important, and, and then tell us about the oak tree? Yes, the site of Dodona is located in a narrow valley on the slopes of Mount Tomaros in Epirus, which is in northwestern Greece. And it's actually a site which is possibly would have been originally a place of worship of the earth goddess. Now there are some artifacts which have been found which date to about the 13th century BCE. And these are miniature objects. And it's because of these miniature objects that, that give us an idea that there may have been this pre-existing cult of the earth goddess there. As far as the Oracle of Zeus is concerned, though, we've got evidence from the 8th to the 2nd centuries BCE that this was in operation. Now, this site was important, and the Oracle site was important, because according to Herodotus, it was the most ancient of all the Greek oracles. And although throughout the Greek world, the ancient Greek world, there were various oracle sites, not only at Dodona, but Delphi, Delos, and on what was then Asia Minor, the Oracle of Dodona was the earliest one, so it was the most important, but also it was the Oracle of Zeus himself, whereas at somewhere like the um, Delphic Oracle, it was an oracle of Apollo. Now, we have very few literary sources, unfortunately, and the earliest literary evidence we have comes from Homer, but it's in the Odyssey that we find the first reference to the oak tree, and we have a few tantalising lines. But he said Odysseus had gone to Dodona to listen to the will of Zeus out of the holy deep-leaved oak tree. So we have the first mention of the tree, and it does give a suggestion that somehow the responses to any oracular questions would come from the tree. The fact that it's deep-leaved also suggests that perhaps the leaves play a role. Now, tradition holds that the priests at the sanctuary interpreted the sounds of the rustling leaves as responses, and also the creaking of the branches. And it's also believed that the sounds of doves in the tree were interpreted as oracular responses. And also, it's quite significant that up until the 5th century BC, there were no temple buildings. So really, the oak tree was indeed the centre of the oracle site. And what do we know about how people interacted with the oak tree at Dodona? I think at the later period, certainly, um, as I say, we have very few literary sources for Dodona, but I think that some of the material objects actually discovered on the site are quite helpful. 
Um, for instance, we've got various examples of bronze oak leaves that have been found. And some of these are life-size. And they've also been found with bronze twigs. So it may be that an actual branch with the leaves was actually represented. These objects seem to be votive offerings and could have been offered to use as gifts or in thanks. So it's quite significant that we find these objects that have been left in the sanctuary. And I think that's the way that, that people may have interacted with the tree because at later periods, um, when the temple buildings were built, there may have been restricted access um, from ordinary people to actually get into the sanctuary site. So they may have only had a view of the tree over the walls. And it seems to be, obviously, at the earlier periods, if the responses were given by interpreting the rustling of the leaves, then it does seem to be that in later periods, as I say, many of the people who probably came to Dodone to ask questions and who wrote their questions on the lead tablets, which have been found in quite large numbers, would have actually had answers to their questions via a lot oracle and not from, directly from the tree. So this would have entailed drawing small coloured objects, such as pebbles from a jar. And we do have literary evidence that there was a lot oracle um, at Dodona at this time. So... Graham, we've been hearing so far about two research projects involving trees and ritual activity. Do you think there's been a shift in recent years in how people study trees? And if so, why? Yeah, I think it's been quite exciting that people have um, thought both about what might have once been just, just science and others just social science or just humanities reading. So on the one hand, people looking at the, the botany and other people looking at uh, texts and narratives of people's affection for or use of, of trees. But the two have come together more recently as, on, on the one hand, botanists have become interested in the way in which trees communicate with each other, and within the humanities and social sciences, people have got interested in whether that helps us to understand what, um, what people, people do with and among trees. So it's been quite an exciting time, I think, looking at uh, trees in different cultures and different times, seeing how the, the, the botany has changed, but also how the, the understanding of different communities has been enriched. How have trees featured in your own research over the years? Um, well, OK, so I've spent time with both contemporary pagans, druids, witches and the like, um, contemporary heathens and shamans, um, for whom some trees are particularly important. So druids are often associated with oak trees. Um, so, so there's been some interesting discussions around that and uh, how they engage, how they understand whether trees are symbols, whether they're beings who can communicate or are worth communicating with. But I've also spent time with different indigenous communities and one of the most influential indigenous scholars, um, and most influential in my work, uh, is a Maori scholar called um, Te Pukaka Tafai, who, um, before he died, um, wrote some very interesting work about Maori religion. And um, he writes, he uses the example of the cutting down of, uh, the, of trees in, a, in the forest to make shelters for guests, um, because you're commanded, on the one hand, not to take life, but you're also commanded to shelter and look after your guests. So he, he encapsulates what he says is the purpose of religious activity as doing violence with impunity, 
with the precise example of cutting down a tree and the digging up of kuma, a sweet potato, both of whom are intimately related to humans and the rest of the living cosmos. So it's a very dangerous thing to go chopping down trees. But uh, so the religion bit is where the ri you, you engage in a ritual to say, sorry, please, thank you. Um, wait to see that you get permission somehow. Uh, and then you take the tree back and with great respect, you then build your uh, meeting house, Faranui, um, in which the, the tree continues to have the same function of separating the, the roof from the floor as it once separated the sky from the, from the land, um, giving other beings room to evolve in, room to communicate, room to, to debate issues in. So I've been then thinking about how that phrase, doing violence with impunity, and those relationships with trees and plants and animals and others, uh, rocks for example, might, um, might be applied or might provoke us to think new thoughts about other religions elsewhere beyond the Maori world. Actually that ties in neatly to something that Anna has been working on about Gilgamesh and you were telling us earlier today about the story of Gilgamesh um, not asking permission. Um, so in the Gilgamesh epic there is this um, um, big um, narrative that um, describes the uh, adventure of uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, his best friend, going to the Cedar Forest, which is on Mount Lebanon, at least on the Babylonian account, um, crossing the Seven Forests and arriving to this beautiful forest where many, many trees, including cedars, um, dwell. And the forest is um, exactly described as a, a sacred forest a dwelling place of the gods. Um, and in fact, it was uh, protected by the same gods, uh, especially uh, the, um, one of the chief gods of the pantheons, uh, um, Enlil, appointed a guardian, a monstrous, terrible, very you-inspiring guardian, Huawa, which, uh, which prohibited uh, everyone to enter. Uh, but of course, the two, these two young heroes want to go there and uh, kill the guardian, and they do that. And uh, after that, they disclose the secret uh, abode of the deities. Uh, so breaking a taboo, making exactly violence with, uh, you know, with punity, because then they are actually punished uh, by the great gods, and uh, um, destroying uh, the, the cedar forest, felling down the trees, which are consequently um, led to the, uh, to the waters of the Euphrates River and they will become, you know, parts of the palace of the king. So, in, within the same narrative, actually, you have two different, I would say, worldviews. One which is protecting the trees and uh, the other one which is, um, that aims to, dis to kill them, to destroy them, to objectify them. So that matches with uh, uh, Graham's uh, argument and, uh, and evidence from other cultures and contemporary cultures about this um, ambiguous relationship that uh, we humans have with uh, trees because we, we are, uh, our life is based on trees for many, many respects. So, and we need them to become, you know, timber. But the matter is how do we uh, cut them? <laughs>
Let me remind you that you're listening to an audio from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. And we're talking today about sacred trees and tree persons. One group of people who've always worked very closely with trees are the Druids. And this summer, a small group of us from the Open University went to Shropshire to spend some time with contemporary Druids to find out more about the different ways in which they interact with trees. Anne Patterson was one of the participants. So, hello, I'm Anne, uh, and I'm a modern-day Druid priestess, a pagan priestess. I've been a pagan priestess for 33 years, Um, so a lot of my adult life been drawn to finding the sacred in nature you know as druids we don't put ourselves on the on the top of the pedestal of of living beings and so uh, actually we would revere trees as older wiser beings who each have their own quality and and it's the type of tree it's the species of the tree so there's if you like there's an overarching spirit or deva of that whole species of the tree which you tap into when you and you you communicate with when you engage with uh, an individual of that species and each species each type of tree has its own energetic qualities and has its own kind of overarching spirit and the and the and the, the energy that it manifests in the world so we will then go to different trees for different purposes or receive different kinds of guidance or aid from different trees so so it's like a council it's like a council of elders and they they have different qualities so like different deities have different qualities and you would go to different deities for different purposes the same with trees is there one particular tree that's very important to you, either a whole a species, I mean, you mentioned the hawthorn yesterday, but, um, or a, an, a single tree that you feel you have a very powerful relationship with? Well, in terms of species, I have a particular relationship with hawthorn because um, one of the things that I do, and, uh, and many druids do, is working with plants and trees for healing both the physical properties of the plant but also the energetic and spiritual qualities one of the things we have to do is choose plant allies to work with and one of my allies and my first ally was the hawthorn and in fact where we're sitting uh, under a big oak tree there are actually two companion hawthorn trees as well and there are many hawthorns in these woods and then hawthorn you know, has has many qualities. It's a smaller tree. It's not one of the larger trees in the woods. It's one of the understory trees, and it's the tree of that's very commonly used for hedging. It's thorny, so it it's protective. It's the it's the energy of the hawthorn blossom, the May blossom, that beginning of summer. The energy of what in our calendar is Beltane is the Beltane energy, the energy of the hawthorn blossom coming into flower on the on the trees. Um, and it's also a tri- it's also associated with the fairy people, whatever you conceive them to be. There is this association with with the fairy, and that they're fairy trees, and that like in places in Ireland, which still kind of has remnants of this tradition, there will be uh, single hawthorns in a field, and the farmer will not cut that tree down because it honours it as uh, as a special tree to the fairies, and that it would be disrespectful and a bad idea. 
to cut it down. So I have this particular relationship with Hawthorne. Shirley, let's hear from you first, because this trip to Shropshire was part of your PhD research comparing the roles of trees in ancient and contemporary rituals. How did Anne's perspective, or the perspectives of Druidry in general, change the way that you're thinking about the religious roles of trees, either now or in the past? This has broadened my thinking about trees and religion. I think one of the things I found fascinating from what Anne said was the high regard in which she and other Druids hold trees and the great respect they have for them. The fact that trees are revered as elders, and I love this whole idea of the Council of Elders, and this acknowledgement of how long trees or an individual tree has been in the landscape, and that therefore makes them qualified to give advice and guidance through the spirit of the species. And also picking up on something um, which relates to what Graham and Anna have both said, of asking permission of the tree to either cut down the whole tree or part of the tree to use in, for example, building a roundhouse or creating drums is quite key to actually get that permission from the tree to actually do that. Um, and I think the relationship to the tree is quite interesting in relation to the oak at the donor because it makes me think about how the ancient Greeks could have regarded that tree. So Zeus is very closely associated with the tree, which seems to have been central to the oracular process. And this brings the question, what was the relationship between Zeus and the tree? So would the ancient Greeks have considered the tree to represent Zeus, or to have been a location in which Zeus was considered to dwell? In one of the ancient sources, and this is a fragment from Hesiod, there is mention of someone dwelling in the tree. Unfortunately, the text with exactly who this refers to is now missing, but it has been suggested that this refers to Zeus, who dwells in the roots of the oak tree with his consort, Dione. So if Zeus was dwelling in the tree, this would also indicate that he was seen as separate from the tree. And if this was the case, would there then have been some kind of indicators for when he was in residence? I think something else which came out of the work which we did with the Druids and Anne touched on was that um, how by working with a particular tree, they established a connection with all trees of that species. So when they went on to work with another tree of that species, they'd already made that connection and they were already somehow familiar with that tree and the tree with them. And I think this kind of relationship is really helpful to consider with any type of research involving trees. Anna, did anything that Anne said in her interview resonate with your work on trees in ancient Mesopotamia? Yes, of course. I mean, maybe a bit differently. Uh, but um, I've been researching about and uh, what came out from my research is that also for the ancient Mesopotamians, uh, specific trees had particular spe- specific personalities. So, for example, the tamarisk uh, is normally regarded as a um, very solitary tree, um, which is growing in the steppes, so kind of desertic tree, which is completely not reflecting uh, completely, I mean, the, um, the materiality of the tree because it was grown also uh, as a domesticated tree, uh, but reflects ideas of the ancients uh, regarding uh, um, that specific tree. And uh, for example, uh, instead of another tree which has a, a more, um, which reflects a more intimate relationship with it is a palm tree. Uh, and especially the kings uh, had a um, kinship um, relationship with, it, with that tree, with the palm tree. And the palm tree is um, a sign of kinship itself. So it's a royal tree, but it's also a maternal tree. 
uh, and often um, in some incantations for gaining fertility, women are approaching the tree uh, for its uh, um, plenty of dates. So it's a symbol of fertility, of plenty, of abundance. Uh, so, and maybe it's a strange um, case, but uh, date palms are not good for building, so it wasn't cut as much as other kind of trees. I think that's mainly what uh, Anna's um, discussions about trees resonates about the ancient Mesopotamia. Graham, what are your responses to Anne's interview? I was, I was particularly impressed about this um, uh, sense of respect for, for trees in various ways it comes across in Anne's interview and in the other um, experience we had with Druids uh, over that, those, those few days. Um, very often people like Druids and other contemporary marginal kind of religion groups maybe um, get accused of being tree huggers um, and there's, there's a sense in which okay there's an intimacy about hugging um, that might become part of what people like Anne and other Druids do but, but before that um, the sense that she gave of, of respect for trees there's a, there's a getting to know the trees um, before this rushing up and hugging so that that kind of accusation doesn't really work as a diminishment of what people do they're, they're trying to, to find out to get to know the tree in the same way that you would get to know um, another human being you wouldn't immediately go and hug somebody on the first time of meeting um, that's something you, you build up to maybe in some relationships so it's quite impressive that, uh, that notion of respect and, and gaining intimacy I'm going to ask you now to each pick out one tree that you've worked with uh, that you think is particularly special for whatever reason it can be one you've visited in person or a tree that you've only read about or seen pictures of Graham I've been thinking about this and I can't really think of a particular one that I want to talk about. Um, but I'm wearing a piece of uh, ancient bog oak from the Somerset Levels, which is near where I was brought up. Um, so a, a tree that fell over into the, the bog land um, in the Somerset, um, I'm not sure, six to 8,000 years ago, I'm not sure precisely when, and has become preserved in the peat bog and is almost a fossil. So, uh, yeah, so it, it, it takes me back to my land. Um, it's an oak, so oaks, uh, I spend a lot of time with druids and others, so oaks are particularly significant in our, in our countryside. So, and it's a, a pendant made for me by a friend. And I've also taken a number of these same sort of pendants with me when I visit indigenous people around the world uh, as gifts to, to give from my land to their land, kind of. Thing. So yeah, so oak and particularly these oaks from Somerset perhaps. A difficult question. Shirley? Yes, like Graham, I think it's, a, it's quite a difficult question to answer because there are so many trees that I could pick. But the one I've chosen for today is actually the oak tree at Dodona, but not the ancient oak tree, but one which was planted in the 20th century on the spot where they believe the original oak would have been in the sanctuary of Zeus. And I think the fact that they have planted a, um, a tree here is really significant as it shows how intimately connected the oak still is with Dodona and also that it matters enough to modern Greeks that they wanted to plant one there again. 
Um, and also, I think it gives an idea of the relationship of the tree to the surrounding landscape, bearing in mind that we can't be sure how similar the ancient landscape would have been to that we see today. But it's still subject to the same features of weather, the winds and the storms that come in, that can be experienced um, by anyone on a visit to Dodona. It also helps to form questions about, how, about the relationship of the tree to the temple building, for example, such as how much would the tree's growth have been restricted by the walls around the sacred area? And even what kind of oak tree would have been the ancient oak, so would it have been evergreen or would it have been deciduous? And it's interesting that the modern tree planting is not a unique occurrence. At the Erechtheion on the Acropolis in Athens, an olive tree has been planted on what's considered to be the site of Athena's original sacred olive tree. So it's quite good that this is happening in different locations. And it's interesting also that both temples seem to have been incomplete, even in their ruined states, without the trees that were such an integral part of them at the time. Anna, how about you? Uh, well, as for Graham and Shirley, it's very, very complicated question and very hard to pick one uh, precisely because uh, personally, I mean, also beyond my research, I'm very much um, a tree lover and a tree hugger, maybe sometimes inappropriately. Um, but uh, um, now I just um, one tree in particular that it's also representing of... Uh, um, my years of doctorate in uh, research and life in Jerusalem is, of course, the olive tree, uh, where, you know, the, in Jerusalem many um, secular olive trees grow, and uh, not only in the Gethsemane uh, garden, for example, but throughout the city in the, in the city gardens, in the city parks, and uh, I've just, it's a very warm memory that every, every evening, walking back home, I used to sit under some of the um, olive trees uh, in a city garden, and um, and also representing, um, yeah, Jerusalem and the land, this uh, very red, you know, uh, soil, and um, I love them in the fall when they're on the olive um, picking season, or in the on the spring when they have the, the little uh, flowers. And uh, yeah, they really represent my PhD uh, phase of life, as much as my mom gave me one little bonsai olive tree that we're gonna plant soon. And uh, so that's why uh, it's a kind of nomadic tree, poor guy. Um, but I'm not sure he's very happy about being moved so much, but we are taking care of him. That brings our discussion to a close. I'd like to thank Dr. Anna Perdibon for joining us at the Open University to tell us about her work on trees and tree persons in ancient Mesopotamia. And thank you too to Shirley Elderfield, Graham Harvey and Anne Patterson for sharing their perspectives on this topic. You can visit the website of the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion to find out more about some of the trees that we've been talking about today, together with a bibliography. You can also listen to further extracts from some of the conversations that we had this summer in Shropshire about various aspects of contemporary druidry, from plants and drums to the idea of spirits of the place. Thank you for listening.